mind of Christ in us. We notice, first of all, the meaning, secondly, the possibility, and finally, the significance. Very deliberately and with good purpose, the apostle uses the expression that he does, the mind of Christ. That word idea of the word mind in our text can best be defined as the disposition of the soul of man. Our mind, as scripture speaks of it, is not simply the same as our intellect. Our intellect really involves only our thinking, while the mind involves our will as well as our intellect. Our mind determines our aims and ambitions, our plans and purposes, our seeking and striving. The mind is the disposition of the soul which controls the channel in which we think and will and speak and act. In a word, it gives Direction to our whole conscious life. And therefore, if the mind is good, our life and walk will be good. But if our mind is evil, our life and walk are bound to be evil. So the Apostle Paul can say to us that the same mind must be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. That is, we must be minded even as Christ was minded. And so our attention immediately focuses upon the mind of Christ. And we have both the personal name Jesus and the official title Christ mentioned here in our text. He is Jesus, the promised Savior. As that name designates, he is himself Jehovah Salvation. The revelation of the God of our salvation who has come to us in the person of the Son to save us from our sins. And his title which designates his unique office is the Christ. For he is the anointed of God. He is God's office bearer, the great servant who shows forth the glory of God's name according to God's eternal purpose. And in that capacity as of the servant of Jehovah, he is the head of the church. He is the firstborn among many brethren, even the firstborn of all creation. And therefore he serves in the threefold capacity of prophet, priest, and king for the sake of his church before the face of God. He is Christ Jesus. And as Christ Jesus, he had a very definite mind during all his earthly ministry. It's especially and particularly to his earthly ministry that Paul is referring, as is plain from the following context. Christ had one disposition of heart and intellect, one mind which determined All of his motives and desires, his plans and purposes, his thoughts and words and deeds. 
It gave a single direction to his whole life as long as he dwelt among us. Even as a child and as he took up his public ministry, as he spoke and taught and preached, as he performed miracles, even as he suffered, even as he laid down his life, humbling himself to the death of the cross. He was always governed by one mind. That's so evident in all of Christ's life and was so essential to his public ministry that our text makes special mention of it here. For as was the case with Christ, so it must be with us also by the grace of God. But what precisely is that mind of Christ. It's obvious from the verses that follow our text that the mind of Christ was his deep awareness of being the servant of God and of the humility that was essential to his position as servant of Jehovah. In this extremely beautiful and significant passage, the Holy Spirit points out to us that Jesus was always deeply aware of his calling to be the Christ. He never lost sight of that. But he was determined that he should always maintain that calling in deepest humility. And that was what governed and controlled all his conscious life and all his walk as long as he was here upon the earth. How beautifully that's set forth in the verses following our text, verses 6 through 8. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Notice we are told that Christ took upon himself the form of a servant. And the idea is not that he merely adopted the outward appearance of a servant in the way he dressed or even in the way he acted, but rather that he actually became a servant. His very form and essence were that of a servant. Christ did that even from his birth in lowly Bethlehem. He was made in the likeness of men. He took our flesh and blood from the Virgin Mary. He came into the world as son of man, born out of Adam in the line of the covenant. He was like us in all the weakness of sinful flesh, 
but with one thing excluded, he had no sin. And he not only assumed our human nature, but he was also found, we read, found in the fashion of a man all his life. As he lay in the manger as a baby, as he clung as an infant to his mother in utter dependence, he grew up as a seemingly ordinary boy of that day. He was hungry and ate. He was thirsty and drank. He grew weary and rested. He knew pain and sorrow. He experienced that this life is nothing but a continual death. But remember that he did all this as God's servant, Christ Jesus. He was sent of God to enter into our flesh and to become like unto us in order that he might bear the burden of God's wrath against our sin in perfect obedience in order to save us from our sins. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. For him, the way of obedience was that deep way of the cross. And he walked that way without faltering. He gave himself as a lamb to the slaughter. He bent his back to the smiters. gave his cheeks to those who plucked off the hair. He bore insult and mockery. He descended down, down, down the ladder of suffering to its lowest rung even in the bottom of hell, as it were, always bearing in obedient submission the wrath of God until he had borne it away. In his deep humility, he was always the obedient servant. That mind was in him. And notice, too, that he did this even while he was himself God. It's true, of course, that only as the Son of God could he bear the burden of eternal wrath against our sins and bear it away. But the point of our text is that all that time, while he humbled himself as the great servant of God, he was God himself. Existed in the very form of God, he possessed all the divine attributes of infinite glory. He was, even when he was in the flesh, the sovereign God. And how easy it would have been for him, from a natural point of view, to exert his sovereign power for his own personal advantage. And yet he never did. He was the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, who bore the likeness of the Father, who was the radiation of the Father's glory, and yet that glory remained hidden behind the humility of the faithful servant. And understand that it was exactly for this reason that God highly exalted him to the position of highest power and honor in heaven. As the apostle expresses that so beautifully 
from verse 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The glory the Lord Jesus now possesses in heaven is the reward of God on his accomplished work in the flesh. The glory that he possesses forever and shares with us, even in the new creation, is still the reward of his perfect obedience in deepest humiliation. The praise will be unto God forever. Two things are emphasized for us in this connection. On the one hand, that Christ never rebelled. Christ was never disobedient, never claimed to himself that which did not rightfully belong to him. That's the idea of the expression, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. We could more literally translate that expression as he did not deem the equality with God a thing to be grasped or stolen. Bear in mind, he is the servant of God, called to devote himself to God with his whole being, and yet he was God himself. How easily, humanly speaking, He could have claimed the power and the glory of God as his own to be used to his own advantage. Yet, he was the faithful servant who never as much as contemplated doing a thing like that. The very thought of perpetrating such a robbery was repugnant to him. Yet, he was certainly tempted to do that very thing Many times, as even you young children will remember, at the beginning of his public ministry, when Jesus was fasting in the wilderness, the devil urged him to take advantage of his divine power by changing stones into bread. Why should he, the Son of God, suffer hunger? Again, on the pinnacle of the temple, the devil whispered the evil suggestion that Jesus could gain the attention and recognition of the people by casting himself down before them. After all, he could command the angels to come to his rescue had not the psalmist spoken of that very thing. And finally, that deceiver had come with the horrific proposition that Jesus could attain all the kingdoms of the world by bending the knee to God's adversary. But in each case, Jesus flatly refused. Later, the Jews offered to make him their earthly king. Again, he preferred to bring their hostility upon his own head rather and that he would exalt himself. Never once did he forget that 
He was servant. He bore the reproach of men, became a stranger to his brethren, was an offense unto his mother's sons, only because he would never show himself equal with God. His great glory and power would remain hidden for a time. On the other hand, because that mind was in him, he made himself of no reputation. And that expression literally means that he emptied himself. He emptied himself. For God's sake, he put off all power and refused the praises of men. He maintained that lowly position of servant in deepest humility in all that he did. And perhaps the clearest demonstration of that humility was given to his disciples on that evening, on the Last Supper, in the upper room, when he girded himself and went about upon his knees washing their feet. And that seemed so entirely improper to Peter that With an offended voice, he asked, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And the necessity of this act was pointed out by Christ himself when he answered, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. All of which made such a lasting impression upon Peter that years later, obviously with this event in mind, Under the inspiration of the Spirit, he wrote to the churches, Be ye clothed with the slave's girdle of humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As an example to us, as well as to fulfill his calling before God, Christ became a most humble servant in God's house. A nobody. For God's sake, he allowed himself to be taken by wicked men and falsely accused and unjustly condemned and punished with the shameful and accursed death of the cross. He gave himself unto death until he became, as it were, public enemy number one, the worst of all criminals an outcast of God and of men. Always the Lord Jesus maintained, I come to do thy will, O God, in the volume of the book it is written concerning me. This, beloved, is the mind of Christ, the humble and faithful servant of God. And that's what our text is talking about when it says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Even as Christ was always aware of his position as servant in God's house, so should we be. Even as Christ wore the garb of humility befitting his office, so should we be girded about with true humility And even as he exercised that humility in all that he did, so must we, the mind of Christ, must also 
be in us. But how is that possible? According to the commonly accepted interpretation of our text, Paul does nothing more than hold up Christ as an example for all to see and for all to follow. We must make the mind of Christ our own so that we are motivated in all our lives even as he was. We must exercise humility over against God and over against one another even as Christ did. And this all implies that humility is simply a natural gift which everyone possesses to a greater or lesser degree if he will only bring it into practice. It remains then up to us to imitate Christ in our daily walk of life. Be not deceived. For the teaching of scripture and the idea of the text is the very opposite. And the Apostle Paul proceeds from the basic assumption that no man is gifted with humility by nature. But that we are all proud and selfish and covetous. When in the verses following our text, the apostle points out that Christ never considered equality with God a thing to be grasped or stolen. He's referring to that basic cardinal sin of which we all make ourselves guilty. By nature, man craves nothing more than equality with God. Our motivating sin is always that we would be as God. Think about it. We still fight that. We want to be independent. We want to do as we please. And that's what the apostle obviously wants to bring to our attention when he uses that expression. Think back, remember that the devil himself made himself guilty of that sin already at the dawn of history. And the very first sin committed was the attempt to become equal with God. The devil was a servant of God in the angelic world, an exalted position, chief of the angels, perhaps the highest of them all, and yet he was not satisfied with that lofty position. He became proud, and his pride brought him to rebellion. And he reached out for the power and the honor and the glory that belonged solely to the living God. He wanted to rob God of his glory by claiming that glory for himself with the result that ultimately he would be cast out of heaven with all the angels that joined him in his rebellion. And think back to the garden. 
entering paradise, Satan would instill in Eve's soul that same vain dream of becoming like God. And he assured her that it wouldn't hurt her to eat of that forbidden tree, no matter what God had said about that tree. In fact, if only she would do a little independent thinking, she would realize that the very name of the tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That very name suggested that it could be to her advantage to take and eat of it. For as the devil wants her to believe, God knew that the day she would eat of that tree, she would become as God, knowing good and evil. And as a result, our first parents, Adam and Eve, who were created in the image of God as his friend servants rebelled against God with the sinful ambition to become like him. They considered equality with God a thing to be stolen. And the consequences of this fall is that all of us are conceived and born in sin, the sin of proud rebellion. Man has become a thief before God. He claims to himself God's gifts and all of God's creation. He acts as if his life, his health, his strength, his possessions, his talents, his abilities are all his own to do with them as he pleases. He considers his own selfish interests the only thing worth Striving for in this world, he seeks the big I, me, myself, and I, his own selfish ends, craving riches, power, honor of men. He uses all of God's marvelous creation in the service of sin, subjecting all to his own evil purposes, claiming all as if it were his very own to do with as he pleases. He would give account to no one for all his actions but himself. In a word, his mind is the mind of Satan. And in proud rebellion against the living God of heaven and earth, who alone is God, he would try to be God's equal. So we can learn from history's light. As we look back, history confirms it. Think of Cain. He chose his own sacrifice. He would bring the fruits of the ground as something he would do for God. And after he was cast out from the presence of God, he made himself a city in defiance to God. Think of Nimrod, the mighty hunter, and his followers who proceeded to attempt to build the Tower of Babel, seeking to make a name for themselves in rebellion against God. Think of King Nebuchadnezzar, even after he had been duly warned of God, how he boasted that he had built this great empire of Babylon. Think of King Herod. How he accepted the praise of men, allowed them to bow before him as if he were God. This is the 
wicked ambition of all who would worship idols, who would corrupt the truth of the scriptures with human philosophies, who seek the treasures and pleasures of sin, who seek the fame and honor of men, and they will all finally culminate in the man of sin, the Antichrist, who will sit upon the throne and be worshipped by people as if he were God. Man would be as God. And therefore God's curse rests upon him. The fallen sinner has lost the right to be servant in God's house. He has no right to the mind of Christ. And he is totally incapable of exercising it. He is proud and selfish. He hates God and he hates his neighbor and reveals that in all his selfish ways. A mere example never would be sufficient to change the heart and will and thought of men to accept the mind of Christ. That example only arouses the hatred and opposition that causes them to crucify the Christ daily. But bear in mind, beloved, that Paul is speaking to those who know the grace of Christ. As he stated already in the opening chapter, he is confident that they share that grace with him in the fellowship of the gospel The point of view of the text is exactly that Christ took on the form of a servant to deliver us from our sinful pride. He has merited for us the right to be restored in the image of God, even in the likeness of the image of Christ, in order that we may be servants in God's house. He has sent his Spirit into our hearts to deliver us more and more from sin and death in order that we should henceforth not live unto ourselves but unto him who died for us and rose again. As we have it in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15, we are given a rightful place in God's covenant fellowship. We are made sincerely willing and able to serve God. Even in the office of believer, prophets, priests, and kings in Christ before his face. It applies to every true member of the Church of Christ. The Apostle expresses it so beautifully in Ephesians 2 verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. All of which, through the working of the Spirit, should make us very humble. And we confess together that we are not worthy a place in God's church. We're not fit for the position to which 
he has called us. It's only God's wondrous grace that he has given us a place in the midst of his people. Think of the psalmist who would be but a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. And even as we seek to fulfill our callings, we realize that it will be accomplished in weakness and that our best efforts will be tainted with sin. And we stand in need of daily confession of sin, daily forgiveness from God, as well as daily bearing with one another in all our weaknesses. We humbly admit that God is not dependent upon us in any way. We can give him nothing. As far as we ourselves are concerned, we only stand in the way, as it were, in our weakness with all our imperfections. The wonder of grace is that this cannot interfere with the work and the purpose of our God, but he who has called us is also able to accomplish his work through us. His strength is accomplished through our weakness so that weakest means fulfill his will. So we humbly acknowledge that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth through prayer and supplication accompanied by thanksgiving our needs are supplied. And therefore the apostle can also admonish us let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus Christ can be an example for us only because the spirit of Christ dwells within us his humility is the gift of God to us Since his love has been shed abroad in our hearts, we love God only because he first loved us. We love one another only because we love God. And we can exercise that love in humility before God and over against each other only because the love of God abounds within us. And therefore we must all heed this warning against our own Selfish pride in humility. We must ever bow before the word of God. Must subject all things to the rule and authority of the Holy Scriptures and our Reformed confessions. We must take it seriously, beloved, being mindful of our sinful flesh that always would seek in pride to promote self and to promote our own vain opinions and philosophies. So may we together live in the consciousness that we are 
together servants, servants of God, under servants of Jesus Christ. So James has admonished us in his epistle that we should not be many masters or teachers knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. We must not in pride assume the position that we know it all, that we have all the answers, that all wisdom rests with us. Yes, one may have more abilities or be far more gifted in some respects than another, but be not filled with pride or with jealousy. Let each make proper use of the gifts he has received. For what does any of us have that we have not received? As Jesus warns us, let no man call thee rabbi, for one is thy master, even Christ. And ye are brethren. It's necessary for us to bear that in mind. We are always only disciples, as it were, sitting at the feet of Jesus to be taught by him. And that applies as well in our relationships with others, with one another. We must be willing to put on, as it were, the servant's garb. And to bend down and to wash one another's feet. Must serve one another for the good of Christ's church. Must be able to forgive one another even as God in Christ has forgiven us. And on the other hand, we must be willing also to have our feet washed. We must want to be forgiven by one another even as we seek forgiveness from above. Expressed positively, we must live out of the grace of Christ Jesus. We recognize his authority and his alone. Again, we sit at his feet as disciples to be taught by him. And then we consider it a privilege to be clothed with that same servant's clothing that made him pleasing to God in order that we also may be accepted in God's sight as we are in Christ. We look to him for strength. We trust in his guidance in every circumstance of life. We are seeking to serve his purpose unto the glory of our God. We are called to do this in unity of spirit. Even as we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, even so we have one calling, one ambition, one goal, that together, as it were, many voices... In one choir, harmonizing perfectly, bringing forth a melodious song of praise, we might together serve our God. The world emphasizes teamwork or cooperation. Beloved, we emphasize the power of Christ, working 
in each of us according to the eternal sovereign purpose of our God. It's precisely the emphasis of the opening verses. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than himself. Beloved, this begins right in our own homes, Having the mind of Christ Jesus means that husbands strive to love their wives even as Christ loved his bride, the church. It was a giving love, a self-sacrificing love. And wives submit to their husbands even as the church humbly strives to submit to Christ. And as parents, we train our children in the fear of God, leading them in that way of humility. As children and young people, we honor the authority of our parents and of our teachers and of all who are in authority over us. For God's sake, And in the midst of the church, having the mind which was also in Christ Jesus means that when one stumbles, one falls into sin, we are there in the love of Christ to help one another, to call to repentance, to kneel together at the cross. We visit one another in our sicknesses and encourage one another in all our trials and troubles. We comfort one another in our sorrows and instruct and guide one another in the way of godliness. We seek each other's eternal welfare as members of the body of Christ. We would give of our very selves in the service of one another. In a word, be clothed with humility for God resists the proud that gives grace to the humble grace to the humble is our incentive according to the plain implication of our text yes we have the example of Christ himself the very son of God yet he took on the form of a servant deeply humbled himself, faithfully walked the way of obedience to the Father, even when it involved that accursed death of the cross. He refused to depart from that way of obedience, even when the way of escape from death, the way of earthly gain was offered him. He did that for our sakes, in obedience to his Father. The more reason why we should be willing and should earnestly endeavor to more and more crucify the flesh and walk in the way of obedience, when for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. For in addition, beloved, we have the grace of Christ within us. 
we not only may serve God and one another, but we are also made willing and able. Christ dwells in us. He works his work through us. And finally, we have the incentive of the crown of life that awaits us. Even as Christ has gone into glory, we share that glory with him. Even as Christ was rewarded with a name which is above every name, his work in us is rewarded in that we shall also receive our own name from the Father. And we shall live forever with the saints to the praise of his glory. For there every tongue shall praise him, each of us showing forth that praise in perfect unison and harmony with all the saints confessing together in word and deed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Most merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy word. We pray, Father, that by thy spirit, even the spirit of Christ, thou wilt work it within us, Remove far from us foolish pride. Humble us before thee. Grant us to have hearts and minds of servants. Yea, the mind of Christ. To thy glory and praise. We ask it with the remission of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. We sing together Psalter number 403. 403.